We're in Thessalonians. We've been walking through the, uh, this book and talking, really looking at it as, as basic Christianity. Um, this is one of the, or probably the first book of the New Testament to be written. And Paul writes it to a church plant, a church that he planted. So a new church of young believers. It's the first letter uh, that goes out. Um, the first piece of the New Testament to be written and gathered for us. And it covers... Uh, really basic Christianity. Issues that are at the core of what it means to be Christian. This morning we arrive, we're at the end of chapter 1, and uh, if you've missed and want to catch up, all the sermons uh, are online. Uh, but we're arriving in chapter, in ver- chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where he talks about the nature of their conversion and a turning uh, from idolatry to serve the living and true God. And it's this turn about what is really about our worship. It's about who and what reigns in our hearts. The issue of idolatry versus the true and living God. It is not an ancient issue. It is a modern issue. It's a daily issue for us. And so it comes very close to home. And I want to to dig in a little bit into uh, what this means for us. But let's first read the text. We're in 1 Thessalonians 1. I'm going to read verse 8 and uh, 9 and 10. God's Word. For not only has the Word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, how You turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son Jesus from heaven whom He raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to Your Word this morning because we know it is living and true. And that You are a God who is not silent, but a God who speaks. We long for You to speak Your Word to us this morning. That You would open our hearts and minds. That You would speak to us about those things that we still cling to. Those things that we still run to. Those things that we still love and treasure. And that compete with You in our hearts. Oh, set us free that we might feast on You afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Really, I'm going to stay in verse 9 as I was doing this. I had verse 9 and 10, and the more I did 9, 10 just kept getting crunched down into a little something. So, we may come back to verse 10. But we're really here in verse 9. And uh, it is this whole idea, the reception that we received among you is this is what happened, that when you heard the message, you turned to God and away from your idols to serve the living and true God. And away from your idols. John Calvin in his institutes said that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. And just think about that for a minute. Man's nature is part of the essential of who we are. In other words, underneath all that is to say human beings are religious beings. We are a worshiping race. We were made, God says, we are, our, our hearts are restless till He made us for Himself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in Him. In that restlessness, until we find Him, we, we find other things. And those things 
we tend to worship. You see it in every culture on the face of the planet that has ever existed. It has been a worshiping culture. It has had religion. It has had those things that it has either set up to worship or infused creation and the trees in the world with spirits and have worshipped. There is this driving thing within us. And so these things that we rely on, trust in, pray to, run to, you know, that we compete and pursue and set our hearts on, these things are the idols of our hearts. He is saying something fundamental about our fallen nature. But it's something that is still a problem for us today. Definitely when Calvin said that, and, and in this passage, it is, he is speaking to uh, the false religions in the world and, and the very physical idolatry. You know, the, the, the creating of images of, uh, of created and natural things that they would make sacrifices to, burn incense to, make offerings to. And, and so it was a very physical and real and outward kind of a thing that would go on. I spent uh, two months in India while I was in college working with a group reaching out to uh, primarily to Muslims. There's 100 million Muslims in India. There's 900 million Hindus. You know, so that is predominant there, but you couldn't walk down the sidewalk with every tree there being a picture propped up and flowers around it and incense burning and a piece of fruit. And, you know, there were, you would walk in, there's temples everywhere with all kinds of figures, you know, human figures with a monkey's head or an elephant's head or these things and all with things around them, offerings and incense and this kind of stuff. It is, that is a very real thing. And it's something that when we find the true and living God that we turn from and know that God is a Spirit and they who worship Him, worship Him in spirit and in truth. But I believe that even though we have a new nature in Christ and many of us have made that turn, that we still wrestle, our hearts still daily have these issues, I think, is our sanctification is progressive and not instantaneous. That our hearts still fight a good fight against an idolatry that goes on in us on an almost daily basis. It haunts us. Paul summarizes the Thessalonians' conversion experience in this way. It's a turning from those idols, from anything else that you have set up in your heart, in your life that you would worship or turn to or run to or set your heart on or trust in and turn to the living and true God. And I think that is still to this day, even though we don't have those physical idols, is still the movement to turn in the human heart away from other things to the true and the living God. Verse 8, it says that your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. That the, the message, the story about your conversion is being told everywhere. We talked about how... Uh, this city sits on a port. It's a port city. It's a large city. It's the capital of this area of the Roman Empire. It sits astride the Ignatian Way. If you know uh, Roman history, the Ignatian Way is there were a series of Roman roads that, that traveled the empire and made travel and, and trade and this kind of thing um, very easy in the empire. People moved very easily. The, these roads were patrolled and 
guarded so that you could travel in relative safety, which in the ancient world was not always true. And so this is a road that ran like from Rome uh, to Constantinople, and it crossed along southern Greece and through Thessalonica. And so here is this city that's a, a port that is serving much of the empire. It's a, a center of commerce and economy. And so the change, this the story of their conversion, of how they turned from idols, from, from Thessalonica, you can see Mount Olympus. Again, I don't know if you know this kind of stuff, but, but Mount Olympus is the, the home of the Roman gods and deities. You know, it's supposedly where they ruled from and where they reigned and lived and all this kind of thing. So the, the, the center of the Roman worship and culture of what they could see to God's house from, from Thessalonica. And word of their turning away from their idols and the gods of Rome and turning to a monotheism, a one true living God, has traveled everywhere. And so verses 9 and 10 is, this, is the story that's being told. It is the story of their conversion and how they made this turn. How the, the preachers were received and they believed the message and they repudiated and forsook their idols and they turned and they're now serving, they're now living a different kind of life, no longer you know, making those kinds of sacrifices and offerings, but they're serving the true and living God in new ways that are really surprising and radical in the ancient world. The way of love and grace and mercy and peace. But it's not only a summary of their conversion experience, as I've said. I believe that it, that it describes not only in some ways our conversion experience, but also then enters into our whole process of sanctification that we continue to turn away from our idols to the true and living God. It's a human problem, this idolatry, because it's a worship problem. And the basic human problem is a worship problem. From chapter 3 of the Scripture till, till the end, what has taken place is a turning from being God-centered, God-worshipping, God-honoring, God-thanking, uh, serving this God to being self-centered and serving and worshipping other things. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1. He says, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Right? That, is, that is the human problem. God is, and we know it. And although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools because what we did as an entire race from chapter 3 of Genesis to the end is that we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for lesser things that we pursue and set our heart on and trust in, and love, and in a sense, obey, and serve. The most obvious, of course, is gods of wood and stone. Isaiah 44, 17, he says, the rest, he, he, he does something, he makes you know, a pot, and he makes whatever, and he, and he does this and that, and whatever he has left, the rest, he makes into a god. His idol. He falls down to it and he worships it and he prays to it and he says, deliver me. You are my God. This, these gods of wood and stone that they use those things to produce other things and then what's left over they turn into an idol and then they start putting offerings and praying to it. 
But we say this too, deliver me for you are my God. Sometimes we are saying that to things in our lives that are not the one and true God. We look, to, we look for our deliverance. We look for things to make us happy. Things to satisfy us. Things to give us hope. Things to help us through our trouble. Things to, we look very often to things that are not God and say that very thing. So what is being forbidden in our turning to the one and true God is a turning from these gods of wood and stone. But it's also, we see in the second commandment, a a forbidding of making images of the true God. Idolatry is not just the making of false gods, but it's making any image of the true God. Right? And that's the second commandment. You, first, you'll have no other God but me. And the second one is, and you'll make no images to represent me and to use them as part of your worship. Calvin said that the Lord, however, not only forbids any image of Himself to be erected by statuary as a statue, but to be formed by any artist whatsoever. It means don't paint Him, don't... You know, don't sculpt him, don't do in any other way. He says, why? Because every such image is sinful, insulting to his majesty. And what they're saying, and I believe what the scripture makes clear all through it, is God forbids this idolatry is simply that anything that you make, even if you make, you know, there are pictures of Jesus around, and you know, there are some ways that you get some image or representation of him we look at them he may have a lamb slung over his shoulder gives you some scene in his life or whatever but here's the thing any such picture will reveal will will conceal more than it reveals it may reveal one little thing to you but but it can't even begin to capture and convey Jesus who is the son of the living God in his moral glory as The one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Some of the pictures in Revelation that says when He's revealed where He comes and and His eyes are a blaze of fire and He stands in a glowing glory and a sword coming from His mouth as He comes to judge. And we take these little pictures and we say, oh, there's Jesus. Like, no! I mean, we have reduced Him to what? You know, He cannot be captured by such things. And that's the... That's the crime in it, the insult in it, if we try to to capture God in some little image. And God says, don't do it. You make me less. You rob me of so much. Images of false God, false images of the true God. Let me tell you, the most pervasive, two more kinds of idolatry that are more pervasive than those, and of which we are less aware, and so we struggle with them more. The first is false and wrong ideas about God in our heads. This is a form of idolatry. When we have unbiblical ideas, as we conceive the image of who we think God is in our heads. And when we conceive wrong or unbiblical ideas about who He is, we are setting up for ourselves a God in our heads who we serve and live before according to that image. We serve that image rather than the biblical idea, the biblical, the true and living God. False ideas, wrong ideas. This is one reason we should take theology seriously. 
We want to get God right. He reveals Himself to us. We don't get to decide who He is and what He's like. He tells us who He is. He tells us what He's like. He tells us what He likes and what He doesn't like. He tells us what honors Him and what insults Him. He gets to tell us. This is, this is just true of all persons. It's the same of you and I. You don't get to just decide whatever you want about me. You say, well, he dressed a certain way and he's got that funny hair on his face. You know? And so you come with these conceptions of... You know, it's proverbial. You cannot judge a book by its cover. And if that's true of us, if you want to know me, you're going to have to let me tell you, you know, what my pet peeves are, you know, the things that make me passionate, the things that I don't like, the things that do. You know, like if you want to get to know me, I'm going to have to reveal myself to you. And there are many ways in which we only know each other to the degree in which we reveal ourselves to each other, which is why we talk so much. But if it's true of us, if I can't know you unless you are willing to reveal yourself to me at some level, my wife still, and oh, I'm not supposed to use, <laughs> you know, my wife still looks at me and is like, what are you thinking? You know, like, what's going on in there? You know, and the reality is you'll never know unless I tell you what I'm really thinking. So how much more for the infinite, uncreated God are we going to not know what He is like or what He is thinking or what He has said and done and who He is unless He reveals it to us which He has done in His Word as a self-revelation of who He is. And we then say, well, my God would never send anybody to hell. Really. I've literally had people tell me in the conversation, where did you get that idea of God? Because I read the Scripture and Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else. I don't believe in hell because it's a comforting thought to me or because I like it in some way. I, I believe it because I'm a follower of Jesus and no one talked more about hell than Jesus. And the day is going to come, Jesus said, when the sheep will be separated from the goats. And the goats will depart into everlasting darkness. And there will be weeping and gnashing and you know the whole business. Jesus again and again says, the Scripture says. And so when we get this conception and we say, my God would never send anybody to hell, He is in fact your God. Because you made Him up. He's not the God of the Bible. Right, But we do this in so many ways. It is our culture out there. We'll take even one notion. The Bible says God is love. And we will just take that and run with it. I don't care what the rest of it says. I don't care how it applies that. I don't care how it defines what it looks like to truly love people and tell them the truth. And we run with it and we think God affirms, interestingly, you know, God affirms my lifestyle. However alternative it may be. God approves my behavior. I would talk to people on the beach and we'd talk about the gospel and ask him when you stand before God on that day, you know, um, and he says, why should I let you in? What would you say? And, and the answer comes back, well, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't do this. I've tried to be a pretty good person. And God, even though I'm half drunk on the beach and sleeping with the, my girlfriend back in the room and I'm doing this and whatever, but they'll stand on the beach and tell you I've been a pretty good person. They've got an idea of God in their head of some kind of grandfather. Maybe the Sistine Chapel helps us with that. You know, you look at that picture, and a marvelous piece of art where God is depicted reaching out and He's touching the finger of man. But He looks like a Roman grandfather who will just wink at you and say, forget about it. 
Don't worry about it. And so I live the life that I want to live and I say, oh, God will accept me on that day because I've been pretty good. That is a conception of God you have in your head, but you made it... See, this is a thing. When we do that, when we don't take the biblical revelation, self-revelation of God and we start creating ideas in our head, God begins to look a lot like us. He loves what I love. He approves what I approve. His theology about hell is, reflects what I would want. You know, all those things. In other words, instead of God creating us in His image, we have done the return favor of creating Him in ours. The last way and where I'm going to camp for the last part of this that we create idolatries in our life is simply the sad truth for us is that we can make an idol out of almost anything. When he said our hearts are idol factories, I think he's right on. I think it is true that this is a deep struggle in the human heart as we struggle toward a sanctification which is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and all of our strength. And until that day comes and I like Him because I see Him like He is, I don't do that very well and I struggle with that. And I love other things. And I go and I run to other things. And I set my heart on other things. In my car. <laughs> I hit my keys all the time and things happen. I'm sorry. This is very serious. <laughs> we can make an idol out of almost anything. We put our hope, our trust, and our need in the wrong things. And in many ways we say, deliver me. Deliver me. You are my God. We don't say you are my God, but we say you deliver me. And so practically speaking, we treat it like our deliverer, our God. We see this in the New Testament in different ways in places like this where Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. You can't have two gods. right? You can't serve both God and money. Right? Jesus seems to be saying, as far as I read him or understand him, one of the, one of the greatest idols, because he doesn't say this about anything else. You can't serve God and... He never does that. He only says it about you can't serve God and money. What I hear him saying is one of the number one rivals for the love of the human heart is going to be money and what money can buy. All our stuff, you know, the better, probably better thing is wealth and the stuff money can buy, like, you know, vacations and toys and cars and houses and, and stuff, right? So, money, you can't serve God and money. In other words, if you serve money, it's your God. You have turned your back. You can't serve to turn, you can't turn and serve the true and living God and still set your heart on and pursue and love and, and find your hope in and your trust in and your need money in the same way. There has to be, he says, you have to turn from our idols if we're going to serve God well. And so, you know, when we see it in our culture, we see it in the religion of our culture, we call it the prosperity gospel, where basically God serves me by blessing me. We'll call it, you know, we use the word blessing because that makes it biblical or it makes it spiritual. You know, He blesses me. I would say, in that whole theology, He serves me by giving me wealth and abundance. And that's what God does. 
Right? That's one of God's major functions to us as His people. Is He serves us and, and He blesses us with all this stuff. Well, I think the Scripture says exactly the opposite. We serve God with the blessings that He gives us. But it's a, it's, it's a, it's a subtle thing. But it says, it says, does He give me all this stuff and so I'm allowed to set my heart on and pursue and really wallow in that stuff? Or does He say, use what God has given you to advance His kingdom and bring honor and glory to His name. And we see a doctrine of money in the New Testament that is nothing like the prosperity Gospel. It's all about sacrifice and giving and generosity and the kingdom and all these kind of things. And it's just a switch. It's just a subtle switch of does God serve me or do I serve God? And what does that look like? Now, scripture gives us a lot of ideas about it. Those are sermons for another day. But we, we do this. We create idols out of other stuff. Colossians 3.5 says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality. Impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Right? These internal desires, passions, he says, can become idolatrous. Right? And then this is where he goes to say, really, idolatry is a, a worship problem. It's a heart problem. It's about where we're setting our hearts and what we pursue and and so usually our, our money or our time and our energy and when that gets siphoned off from loving and serving the true and living God with all our heart soul mind and strength and it gets siphoned off to serving and pursuing other things Martin Luther said a God is whatever we expect to provide all good the things we need and which we take refuge in in our distress where do you run when you're hurting, when you're stressed, when you're whatever you set your heart on, whatever you put your trust in, that I will tell you is your God. Say what you might. You may say, I believe this, this, and this, and God is my God. And then when we look at our lives, and the truth is, He is not the one that we have set our heart on and putting our trust in and who we flee to and take refuge in and who we serve in this way. There's so many things that we begin to need Places where we run instead of God when we're depressed, when we're afraid, when we're hurt, when we're stressed. Where do we turn? We turn many places to alcohol or we turn to our anger for an outlet or we turn to gaming. And Some of the guys will know what I'm talking about. We can turn to gaming. We can turn to our work. We can turn to sport. We can turn to pornography. We can turn to food. We can turn to shopping. Almost anything can be turned into that thing which we turn to and find comfort in and, and release in or satisfaction in or happiness or whatever it is that we, we're after. Keller says our idols are those things which we count on to give our lives meaning. They are the things of which we say, I need this to make me happy. If I don't have this, my life is worthless and meaningless. Fill in the blank. What can we put in there that really you can't, you're, you're struggling to be happy because you don't have this? Because it's not being given to you. In other words, what desire is ruling your heart and so it controls your emotions and runs your life, determines your choices? What is it you need to make you happy? 
to save you from your depression, your fear, your hurt. Some of us need to be respected. And if I'm not respected, then I'm angry or I'm depressed or I, or I flee to some sort of self-medicating release that will help me to deal with the fact that I'm not. I want to be appreciated. I want to be the center of attention. I want to be in control. I want you know, so many things that we end up needing. I need a spouse if you're single. If I only had a spouse, I'd be happy. And I don't, so I'm not. And it keeps me in a spiraling depression or struggle. In other words, it has taken the place of the source of our joy and satisfaction rather than the Lord. Or you are married, and if only I had a certain kind of spouse, then I would be happy. Then I would be. If my spouse only did this, or if he only cared like this, or if he only, if only I had, I would be happy then. I would be content then. I would be satisfied then. Some of us, it's control, and when we're not in control and things don't go the way we want them to, or our orderly world, we become anxious and fearful and depressed because our hope and our trust is misplaced. When desires rule our hearts instead of Christ, we start to place expectations on others to behave or to provide what we need And when they fail those expectations, you receive my anger and my disappointment and my judgment because you are failing to be to me what I need you to be. And what we see in the Scripture is God says, that's me. That's my place in your life. I'm the one who is to supply all of that for you. And the problem is, in a lot of this, we, as we struggle with these things in our lives, we tend to strain gnats and swallow camels. And what I mean is, it's so we recognize we're impatient, or we're angry, or we're depressed or dissatisfied, and so we start hacking at those things. How am I going to be less depressed tomorrow? Or how am I going to be less angry tomorrow? And then I try to control my emotions. I try to control those outward things. Tomorrow I'm going to be a, a less angry person. I'm going to be a less proud person. I'm going to be a less... All the different things that we say that we're just going to... And we start hacking at the outward th- at gnats. When the camel is this, there's something going on in your heart. We miss the root problem, which is a misplaced hope, a love of self, a set of expectations that have nothing to do with the true and the living God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, an idol is anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and it rouses and it attracts so much of my time and my attention and my energy and my money and I would have my emotional life. Anything that is taking all of that that belongs to God And we tend to serve it and rather, and they are a wicked taskmaster. They are a cruel taskmaster. And as we serve it, we find we suffer. You want to know what your idols are? I would say there are two things in particular. You can do it other ways, but I would say follow the money. Follow the money. Second thing is follow your anger. Follow your anger to its root. Why are you angry? You have some... Something you have set up and decided should not be touched. (laughs) And when it's touched, it makes you mad. And that thing then drives, you know, we know that we serve the thing rather than God because God says anger never brings about the righteous life that God desires. 
Right? Anger is not a nice representation. Anger, when anger, when you touch something and you get my anger, it says, I serve this thing more than I want to be obedient to God and to treat, you know, to be the kind of person not angry and mean and impatient and unkind. I would rather serve this thing and you get this than I would to serve God. And it's true, we're serving something else. Because if I'm serving God, you wouldn't be getting this from me. Because Jesus has come to me and learned from me, I am humble and gentle of heart. And the fruit of my spirit is love and joy and peace and it's patience and kindness and goodness. And if we are knowing and loving and serving and finding all of it from Him, but we're not, the problem is you've touched that thing. So, you know, I think of examples lots of them in my life. One of the first ones when I really was a very young Christian, I had a child in my first few years of being a Christian. Uh, and, and that's when a lot of our selfishness is revealed. And I'm, you know, sitting at the computer doing something. I'm having my own time or whatever. When you have children and a wife and a family like that, you don't have a long time. At least, not, at least it's not a right or a given. You know, those are the things we negotiate and by God's grace can be there. But here's the thing, that I'm doing something and my child interrupts me and it makes me angry. Like, leave me alone. I'm trying to, you know, give me some space. I need my, you know, here's, I'm 23, 24 years old and there's this thing going on and I remember at that point of like, why am I so angry at my child? It's because I have this expectation that I should have this alone time. It's my right Right? It, it, it's my, it, it's, it's an inviolable right and you're violating it. And what do you get when you violate my thing? When Jesus says, never. You know, how many ways does He say it? No. But what's going on with me? Why? You know, in, in my life, so many different ways is, and it's helped me to say when these negative things come out of me, you have to trace it down to the root and say, what am I loving more than the person in front of me that I would treat them like that? What am I loving too much? What am I serving that is not the true and living God? Jeremiah 2.13 says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters. Me is the source of life. Life, abundant life, joy, peace. You know, acceptance, satisfaction. Right? See, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will be a source to you. A fountain of living waters that will flow in your souls. Jesus has come to me. I have come and I give you my peace. Not as the world gives, but I give you my peace out of the fountain of living water. He says, so I do all this so that your joy may be full. I give you my joy out of the living fountain. He says, come to me and, and I will give rest to your souls. And so here, out of the abundance of this living Water, I will give you rest and satisfaction. You know, me, I am the vine and you are the branch. And when you abide in me, all your life will flow with the fruits of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness that you long for. It's not by hacking away at those things on the, you know, trying to control them. It's, it is finding that we are loving, trusting, running to, setting our hearts on, defending the wrong thing. He says, 
The story of your conversion is how you turned from your idols. You turned from loving and protecting your, you know, and for me, and one of the things I think as Americans that we do are rights. You know, what we think that we need, those things that we protect and we demand from each other. We turn from all those things. Jesus gave up all of His rights. He had a right to everything. He had a right to our worship and to our service and in every other way. And it says, Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He gave up His rights. And He made Himself nothing. And He became a servant. And He laid down His life. And He didn't fight for His rights. Peter pulled his sword and he said, put it away. I laid down my rights in love and in service in that sense to you and your salvation. And our way in following Him is to lay down our rights which become the idols over which we fight and become angry. That we turn and we begin to hate the things that we once loved. And we begin to love those things we used to hate. Purity and righteousness and holiness and goodness and kindness and patience and those things that I did not pursue and set my heart on now become those things I have turned. I will be your God. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And you will love me with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your strength. I will be to you a fountain of living water, a source of all those things that you're desperately looking for and clinging to those other things, setting your heart on those other things, running to those other things, all that you're looking for. I will be that for you. And it will set you free. It will fill you. My cup will overflow and you will, you will not be takers, you will be givers. Right? You will be givers because you have found your satisfaction and I don't need to extract it from anybody else. I don't need to fight for it and defend it from anybody else. I have found it. And when my cup overflows, I can be a giver of life and not a taker. Let us be those who have turned and forsaken our idols and turned to the Serve the true and living God. Satisfied. Joyful, happy, peaceful. In Him and in Him alone. And so with you, I can be gentle and humble of heart like my Savior. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word that is living and true and we confess there are so many things in our hearts that vie for control that capture our attention, that suck away our resources in which we're finding satisfaction or seeking it. It's like drinking salt water. Father, we know it only makes us thirstier. It doesn't satisfy us. It only makes us crazy. We long to drink of the living fountain. We long to truly find You to be satisfying to our souls. The One to whom we run to and You do give rest, peace, Joy, contentment, life, hope, everything we long for. Oh, Father, set us free. Set us free from ourselves that we might serve the true and the living God and You alone. For in Christ's name we ask.
Amen.